Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined again with Dr. David Potter uh, for a conversation on the former Roman Emperor Constantine, his reign. And Dr. Potter was on the show in the past, and this episode acts uh, somewhat as a sequel because in the last episode that we did together, we covered Constantine becoming emperor of Rome, which published on April 21st, 2021. So Dr. Potter joins the show again. And as mentioned, we're going to have a conversation more about uh, Constantine's reign as Roman emperor. Dr. Potter is Francis W. Kelsey Collegiate Professor of Greek and Roman History at University of Michigan based in the U.S., He has written many publications over his career, including authoring a couple books as examples. Constantine the Emperor, which was published by Oxford University Press, and the forthcoming book, Disruption, Why Things Change, which will also be published by Oxford University Press and is scheduled for release in July 2021, so this year. Welcome back on the show, David. Thank you, Andrew. It's very nice to see you again. It's great to see you as well, David. Okay, so uh, let's put some time periods to it first, if we could, David. So what what's known about Constantine's life in terms of um, uh, when he lived and then the period that we're working from when we're talking about his reign as Roman emperor? Yes. Constantine was born around about 280 in the city of Niasus, which is the modern city of Nish. He was the son of a Roman bureaucrat by the name of Constantius and a woman by the name of Helena. After Constantius was promoted to deputy emperor, uh, Constantine was sent off uh, to be educated in the city of Nicomedia in Turkey in the late 290s, uh, and he remained there until 305, uh, and at which point he returned to join his father, who was now emperor, and in 306, in the city of York, he was proclaimed emperor by his father's staff. He would remain emperor until 337, gradually taking control of the whole empire. He only ruled a quarter of it, uh, that is, uh, which his father was directly in control of from 306 to 312. After 312, he ruled half of it. uh, And after 324, he ruled the whole thing. Okay. And in the last episode that we did, um, and thank you, David, in the last episode that that we, we covered, uh, we spent a, quite a bit of time at the start on the on the concept of the the te- tetrarchy. Um, so I want to kind of start start there to create this natural kind of se- segue into more his his reign. So by the by the time he's now Roman emperor, um, is that is the tetrarchy no longer in existence? And if it's no longer in existence, what what is what is the structure of Rome from an emperor perspective? Is there is there only one Roman emperor, or is there still more than one one uh, Roman emperor? Constantine really devoted his career to undoing the Tetrarchy. Uh, when he became emperor initially in three hundred six, he was allowed to take the title of Caesar or deputy emperor by the then senior emperor Galerius. Uh, Galerius was the son-in-law of Diocletian who founded the system of the Tetrarchy and was very keen on preserving it. What Constantine gradually did, having begun as a Tetrarch, uh, was to re-establish the principle of a monarchy 
though at, when he died, he effectively tried to reestablish a tetrarchy by dividing up power between his three sons uh, and a nephew. Now, what Diocletian had realized is that one person couldn't run the empire alone. What, what Constantine learned as he was emperor is that one person couldn't run the empire alone, uh, but in his lifetime, he had ruled through a group of senior officials uh, who were effectively acting as his Caesars, uh, as Praetorian prefects in different quarters of the empire. Uh, so what we might call Constantine uh, is the author of a reformed tetrarchy reformed tetrarchy or a monarchical tetrarchy or something along those lines. Uh, Constantine also symbolized his opposition to the tetrarchy because uh, under Diocletian, all of the emperors looked pretty much alike. They all had beards and they were represented as having a square demeanor. Uh, and uh, very shortly after he became emperor, Constantine was depicted with no beard. Uh, and he was never going to be bearded in the rest of his uh, reign, and that would be true of his descendants. He set a very different uh, style for emperors uh, who would come after him. Interesting. So when he was, point of clarification then, David, so when he became Roman emperor, was he the sole emperor of the entire Roman emperor, or was there one other emperor at that point in time? When Constantine took power, there were actually three other emperors uh, at that time, there was a man by the name of Severus who was ruling in Italy and was supposed to be Constantine's boss. Um, there was Galerius who was in charge of the whole show, who was tended to be based in the Balkans. Uh, and then there was uh, Maximinus Daza, who was uh, ruling as Caesar in the east. Very shortly after Constantine uh, took power himself, Severus was overthrown by Maxentius, uh, the son of the previous uh, Augustus and colleague of Diocletian, uh, Maximian. Uh, so really from 306 onwards, we had a split between the two sons of Constantius and Maximian, Constantine and Maxentius in the west, Galerius uh, in the center, and Maximinus Daza uh, in the east. Okay, and we don't have to probably spend a lot of time on this point because we're going to speak more about his actual reign. I guess it it falls inside the the demarcation of the episode. Do you want to do you want to cover how he becomes sole emperor? Yes. Um, between uh, three oh eight, when he was recognized uh, as legitimate uh, by Galerius, uh, and three twelve, Constantine's relationship with Maxentius was somewhat strained, even though Constantine was married to Maxentius's daughter. Uh, the, in the Balkans, uh, Galerius had appointed a man named Licinius as his deputy, uh, which was deeply resented by Maximinus Daza. Uh, when Galerius died, it became very clear that the empire was now split between two factions which were extremely hostile to each other, Maxentius and Maximinus uh, Daza on one side, Constantine and Licinius on the other side. Uh, Licinius was in a very difficult situation, trapped between Maxentius and uh, Maximinus Daza, but what Constantine and he did was essentially agree that Constantine would take over Maxentius as part of the empire 
while Licinius uh, took on Max, uh, Maximinus Daza. So the Constantine's invasion of Italy in 312 effectively enabled Licinius to concentrate his forces in the east against Maximinus Daza. Uh, Constantine invaded Italy uh, in the spring uh, and campaigned in northern Italy, where most of the forces of Maxentius were concentrated in 312, uh, defeating them uh, outside of Turin, outside of Verona, uh, outside of Milan. Uh, and then in October, he moved south to Rome. And on the 28th of October, uh, he defeated Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Um, after that, uh, he went and met with Licinius uh, at Milan. Uh, uh, Licinius married Constantine's half-sister and in the next year uh, destroyed the army of Maximinus Daza. Um, so they're now dividing the empire into two parts. That didn't last very long. Uh, Constantine decided that Licinius was conspiring against him and in 317 attacked the empire of Licinius uh, there was a very complicated series of campaigns in Central Europe. Constantine emerged as largely victorious. Uh, this is the one set of campaigns, in fact, where Constantine didn't win a completely decisive victory. Licinius was a pretty good soldier. Uh, and so they made a peace treaty in three, at the end of 317 uh, where Constantine was left in control of sort of... Uh, three-fifths of the empire, effectively, at that time, uh, and the rest was left uh, in the hands of Licinius. In 324, Constantine uh, decided he'd had enough of Licinius, attacked Licinius as part of the empire, uh, defeated Licinius. Licinius surrendered at uh, Nicomedia, um, which is Ismet in western Turkey, uh, on promise of his life, uh, was taken to Thessaloniki, and executed. One thing you did not want to be was a brother-in-law of Constantine. It was a fatal occupation. Diocletian, before Constantine, um, clearly spent a lot of time and effort setting up this tetrarchy. He had clearly high hopes for it. Um, it doesn't appear in history to last too long. Constantine's actions, which you described there, David, um, and you might have to infer a little bit, but was he, do you think his actions were coming from um, trying to subdue all the civil wars? And he felt that that was just, be, you know, better from his perspective and perhaps uh, from his perspective, better for the empire. Do you think he had different motives and um, really just wanted to have that, that sole control and power in the in the in the em empire, what can be what can be inferred or known about that? You know, you have Diocletian that spends all this time setting up the the tetrarchy, and then shortly shortly after it uh, it it is uh, abolished. That's a really uh, very interesting uh, problem, Andrew. And I think that what Diocletian was trying to do was create a system of government that would perpetuate itself uh, where you essentially would promote an able person to be deputy who would then be capable and experienced to take over. What Diocletian didn't appreciate is that the system really depended on the incredibly powerful personality of Diocletian himself. 
Uh, the immediate succession to Diocletian did not work very well. Constantius and Galerius never were on the same page, albeit they were only co-emperors for a couple of uh, 18 months. Uh, Galerius had gamed the system to make sure that both of the deputy emperors were, her, were his people. Uh, so from Constantine's perspective, although Diocletian's system might look like a way of avoiding civil war, what Constantine saw it was a system to be gained. And what I think Constantine set himself out to do uh, was to make the system actually work. He understood it could only work if there was a powerful number one person, and that was the person he was intending to be. And so when we look at what Constantine ultimately does, uh, is he keeps the divisions, the administrative divisions, which had grown up uh, under Diocletian and were stabilized under the immediate succession to Diocletian uh, as administrative districts. These are called prefectures. Uh, under bureaucratic control, uh, the senior officials who would report to him. Uh, but his notion uh, was very definitely that you had to have a much stronger and more obvious chain of command uh, than Diocletian had had. Uh, and I think in his own experience, having seen Diocletian, having worked in Diocletian's palace, having worked for Diocletian, uh, he understood what had actually been the case with the Tetrarchy uh, and why the formal system that Diocletian set up could not survive without Diocletian. And dates. You mentioned earlier it, it was 308 to 337. That was his reign as emperor? Uh, 306 to 337 was when he was emperor. In 308, a deal was made which really sort of guaranteed that he would be recognized uh, by Galerius uh, Licinius, etc. I mean, uh, Galerius was none too pleased with Diocletian for having, for, sorry, for, with Constantine for having seized power. It's just that he really couldn't stand Maxentius. Uh, so he was willing to deal with Constantine uh, because he felt Maxentius was far more offensive. Um, Galerius had actually tried to throw Maxentius out. Uh, and for the only time in his life, and Galerius was a great soldier as well, uh, he'd been defeated in Italy. And so I mean, Maxentius is a persistent. A reminder of a serious embarrassment. What year is he known to be sole emperor to start to start that reign? He's sole emperor in 324. He's co-emperor with Licinius from 312 to 324. Okay, so so a lot of his uh, reign, that period of his life, was as a co-emperor. That's right. Okay, so then. Then um, we'll, 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 when I'm asking some of the questions coming up, then I won't um, circumscribe the question to only soul, soul then, but we'll kind of work our way through that period, sort of that, okay. th right, that 312 to 324. Okay, so uh, during his reign, and, and of course, on that, that note, please bring up if he's, if he's soul or not, or it might be implied based on the years as you, as you provide them. But how would you summarize what he's most known for? during his reign, and then we can, un, you know, we can unpack some things from there. Yeah. The single most important uh, aspect of the reign of Constantine was, of course, his conversion of Christian to Christianity, uh, which was really an ongoing process uh, from 312 onwards. I think it's 
quite likely that Constantine knew very, very little about Christianity at the time that he decided to become a Christian. It was in many ways a reaction uh, against the ideology of the Tetrarchy. Uh, Diocletian and Galerius and Maximinus Daza had all been serious persecutors of the Christian church. Uh, and I think that as he was contemplating the invasion of Italy in 312, Constantine was hoping he could find a god that could guide him uh, and he could perhaps find no god that would be better at that than the god that Galerius liked the least, uh, the Christian god. Uh, and very much for Constantine, uh, throughout his reign, uh, he understood the Christian god as a god of battles, uh, the god who brought him success in war. Okay, and um, so we'll, we'll have some questions about Christianity. Was there another couple points to create some context for the rest of the conversation, David, that Constantine would be most known for in his, his reign? And then we'll we'll kind of go in and out of those, those topic points. Okay. Um, another aspect of Constantine's reign that was extremely important, of course, was his relocation of imperial power away from Rome. This had, of course, begun... Uh, with Diocletian and the establishment of different imperial centers around the empire at Trier, uh, at Sirmium in the Balkans, uh, at Nicomedia, at Antioch. Uh, but the foundation of Constantinople as the principal, to be the principal capital uh, in the East, uh, was huge. And again, it was something that had an enormous long-term impact uh, because as the empire splintered in the 5th century, Constantinople uh, became the center of Roman power. Okay. Um, another thing that Constantine was very active in doing was transforming the Roman army. Uh, he recruited very heavily from north of the frontier, and what we begin to see by the end of, Diac of Constantine's reign uh, is that a, quite a number of German officers are moving into very senior positions uh, in the army. So the sort of effective Germanization uh, of the army is a third very important aspect. This didn't make the army any less loyal. It didn't make the army any less good. Uh, but what it is, is a sign that for Constantine, there was a split between the military side of the regime and the civil side of the regime. This is something that had begun with Diocletian, uh, becomes ever more pronounced with Constantine. Okay. Well, okay. So this is good, David. Thank you for creating some context and we'll kind of work our way through these, these topic points and maybe some other stuff just naturally comes up. In the conversation, so let's go back to Christianity. So, um, what what I've heard, and I think it might have come up on this this show. I'm pretty confident that it's come up at least once on this show before. Um, might have even come up in our last episode. I just can't fully fully recall. But he, um, my understanding is he he uh, becomes baptized near the end of his life. So if that if if that is uh, believed to be the case by scholars, um, what's known or inferred about that? And can you speak more about what you believe his relationship to Christianity was? Yes, Constantine was in fact baptized on the last day of his life by Bishop Eusebius of Nicomedia. Uh, but he had certainly believed that he was 
specially protected by the Christian God, uh, and that he had a responsibility for managing the Christian church as an increasingly significant institution in the Roman Empire since 312. Uh, the, there are many stories about Constantine's conversion. Uh, the only one that we can, I think, believe is the one that Constantine to- tells us himself. Uh, in 314, he wrote to uh, the Council of Arles. At that time, he said that he was cert- realizing that he had some flaws as a human being. This is one of the most remarkable statements ever made by a Roman Empire emperor to anybody ever. Uh, and therefore was seeking for guidance. And he then discovered the God who lives in the watchtower of heaven, is how he describes it. Uh, and that God has brought him uh, to new understanding and made him a better person. Uh, by the time that Constantine wrote that letter in 314, it seems that he hadn't fully understood he was supposed to be a monotheist. Uh, this is also true of other early statements Um, connected with Constantine's conversion, which occur in a speech in praise of Constantine that was delivered just a year earlier in 313. And in that speech, the uh, speaker tells us that Constantine had a hidden and secret meeting with divine mind, and divine mind revealed to Constantine how it would be that he could invade Italy and be successful uh, in his... Uh, campaign against Maxentius. Uh, the crucial thing is that both the speech of 313 and the letter of 314 indicate that there was a very private, personal moment where Constantine met his God. Later on, uh, because nobody could really fix an immediate moment uh, for Constantine uh, to be converted, people made up all kinds of stories about what happened. Uh, The most famous of these stories is probably the one in Eusebius uh, of Caesarea, who wrote a biography of Constantine and a history of the Christian church. And Eusebius says uh, that Constantine, before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, uh, saw a vision in the sky, um, and there uh, was a sign of the cross, and that... Uh, said to him, uh, in this sign, conquer. Uh, And uh, there was another story told by uh, Lactantius, um, who wrote a book on the deaths of the persecutors uh, shortly after Constantine's victory over uh, Maxentius and Licinius's victory over uh, Maximinus Daza, in which he said that Constantine had a dream, and as a result of that dream, uh, he had the... Uh, a Christian symbol put on the the shields of his soldiers. Um, But there again, uh, I think he also has, uh, Lysidius had a dream before battles, like like anxious, like people who are going to win battles to have dreams of God uh, before battle. Uh, But these are all later stories, and there's even later story, uh, because nobody in Western Europe uh, read Eusebius's Life of Constantine, Uh, that Constantine was converted uh, by uh, the Bishop of Rome. Uh, And if you go today to the Raphael uh, Room uh, in the Vatican, you can see uh, both stories represented um, 
Uh, and the tapestries there is Constantine staring up at the cross in the sky, Constantine uh, being baptized by, by the Pope. And there's a further story um, told by pagans later who didn't like, uh, was very upset by the consequences of Constantine's conversion, uh, that he converted in 326 uh, after he murdered his wife and his son at Rome. Um, that's also a somewhat dubious story. What year do you think he considered himself to be a Christian? I think in his own mind, Constantine believed that he was a Christian insofar as his principal God was the Christian God in 312. Okay. During his reign from 312, let's let's start there, uh, what's known about religious-oriented policies he would have created for the empire? Yes. One of the first things that Constantine did uh, was to ensure freedom of worship for all Christians. Uh, In his meeting with Licinius, uh, he recommended to Licinius that if he defeated Maximinus Daza, he'd do the same thing. Uh, And so in the summer of 313, after his victory in the east, Licinius issued a letter to all of the eastern provinces uh, restoring a property that had been confiscated from the Christian church uh, to the church uh, and also declaring freedom of worship uh, for everyone. Uh, This is sometimes or quite often referred to as the Edict of Milan, um, and seen as a sort of Constantinian thing, but it really wasn't. It was a letter to the eastern provinces that was sent to Licinius as a result of his meeting with Constantine at, um, in Milan, but it wasn't really Constantine's document at all. What Constantine was already trying to do uh, was to forge a relationship with the Christian church. And as soon as he took power in Rome, he realized he had a very nasty problem on his hands in that there was a horrendous split in the Christian church in North Africa. And this, of course, uh, an area that's very important if you're trying to run anything from Rome. The grain supply of Rome comes from North Africa. Uh, But during the persecutions, uh, one group of Christians, uh, supported by the Bishop of Carthage, uh, had argued that the best way to avoid real damage to the church Uh, was to seem to collaborate with the imperial authorities. Uh, What the authorities were ordered to do was to burn Christian scriptures. Uh, And the Bishop of Carthage simply said, well, just give them the works of some heretics and let them burn those, and then they'll all go away uh, and we'll be fine. Now, one of his rivals, however, uh, uh, one of the rivals of the Bishop of Carthage said, that's outrageous, we're not going to do anything like that. We have to resist persecution. Persecution comes from the devil. Uh, We're not supposed to do that. And so a fight breaks out about how you should react. The supporters of the Bishop of Carthage say that the supporters of the Bishop of Numidia are getting everybody killed and arrested uh, by resisting the imperial government, which it would be very easy just to make them go away. Uh, And we have a wonderful document from the city of Kirta where the poor mayor has come down, he knocks on the bishop's door, he clearly knows who he is. I said, look, could you please hand over some of your sacred books so I can burn them in, uh, in accord with the edict of the emperor? And the bishop turns to him and says, I don't have any. The, the guys over there have them. And so you can follow this guy wandering around Kerta 
So he finally gets his hands on some books so that he can go burn them. And that's clearly going to be the end of the whole thing. And that was the way that the Bishop of Carthage envisaged things. Um, the Bishop of Numidia uh, said, no, we must, you know, we have to stand up against persecution. Uh, we have to uh, suffer for our faith. Um, and there certainly was one group of uh, Christians who were arrested and thrown into prison in Carthage. Uh, and it looks as if the forces of the Bishop of Carthage actually surrounded the pr pr prison to make their imprisonment more harsh. Uh, the position of the Bishop of Carthage was these guys are all heretics. They're telling, doing what I told them not to do. So they don't deserve any help from our community. Uh, so we can see, as a result of this, why there should be such a terrible split in the church. Uh, each side re regarded the other as having done something completely unforgivable. Now, this ends up in Constantine's lap. Now, um, uh, at, by the end of 312, beginning of 313, uh, and there's a brand new bishop of the, so we say the, the rigorists or the uh, or the group who believe in, in resisting persecution, a man named Donatus, uh, and his faction is by far the most powerful in North Africa. Um, and he comes to Constantine and says, well, you're restoring church property, give me to the church. And Constantine says, well, I can't decide this on my own. I've got two different guys who are saying they're Bishop of Carthage. So how am I going to decide this? And this becomes very important at this very moment. He says the Christian church is going to decide what counts as doctrine and Christian policy. So councils of bishops will manage Christian doctrine. I will intervene to make sure that the decrees of that council uh, are carried out. But really, it's for Christians to run their own show um, and uh, I'm here. I'm here to help, uh, and so this happens in Rome um, in 313. The fight continues, goes to Arles in 314. This is the group to which Constantine wrote the letter describing his conversion. Uh, the situation in North Africa does not really calm down, uh, and actually, Constantine was on the verge of ordering a actual persecution of the Donatist faction in North Africa, the arrests of Christians in North Africa and 317, 318. Uh, and presumably some bishop talked him out of it. Uh, quite possibly, I'd like to think it might have been Lactantius, who at that point was uh, the tutor to Constantine's oldest son. He'd come to Rome. Constantine would probably have known him from his days in Nicomedia, because Lactantius had been the professor of Latin in Nicomedia, and quite possibly Constantine's teacher. Uh, and what we can see after 317, 318, is that Constantine... Uh, is very heavily influenced in his understanding of Christianity uh, by the thought of Lactantius. Uh, Lactantius had written a book to instruct uh, people like Constantine, um, the Divine Institutes. Uh, and by 325, uh, when Constantine writes to bishops in the East, he quotes his own letter, is largely summarizing uh, substantial pieces of Lactantius. Uh, so I think we can see that in this period uh, before 320, uh, that Constantine is coming to a better understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, still not a complete understanding, because in 321, uh, there's a, uh, uh, a rescript, that is to say, an imperial order uh, to the prefect of Rome saying, if the imperial palace has been struck by lightning, you have to consult the Haruspikes to see what to do about it. 
So that was Constantine, the Christian emperor, ordering a pagan rite uh, nearly a, a decade after he's decided he's a Christian god. But for Constantine, uh, he's really um, not so much a monotheist in thinking there could only be one god, but really a henotheist, uh, thinking that there is one god who is more important than all the others um, and who everybody else is supposed to listen to. Which sounds rather like Constantine's vision of being Roman emperor. Uh, and uh, But he's not going to rule out the fact that these other gods also existed. After all, people have been believing in them for thousands of years. Um, but that's a critical aspect of Constantine, is the notion that Christianity can coexist with paganism. How do you, um, how do you reconcile uh, all these events that occurred, which you outlined very, very well? How do you reconcile that and can it be reconciled or, or summed up in terms of the level of tolerance that would have existed in the Roman Empire uh, during Constantine's reign? And, and did it really vary depending on the region of the empire? For Constantine, I think the experience of the persecution under Diocletian was crucial. He realized that it simply couldn't work. You could not force people to change the way they thought. Uh, I think that Constantine believed uh, in freedom of conscience. Uh, the result of that is that throughout the empire, there could be an open dialogue between people of different uh, religious orientations. Uh, and this remained true throughout Constantine's reign. It would change in the course of the fourth century, uh, and certainly even under Constantine's sons, uh, we can see the imperial government becoming uh, much stronger in its efforts to repress pagan cult. The only temples that we know that Constantine shut down uh, were some oracular sites uh, that where Constantine, I think, was quite willing to believe the Christian belief that it isn't the God speaking here, it's a demon, uh, especially sites in Asia Minor, which had contributed to the great persecution of Diocletian, uh, and some sites uh, where Constantine had been told that ritual prostitution was being carried out. Uh, so he closed those down really on the basis of immorality, not so much uh, because they were pagan temples. Okay, so moving to the second point of the major three points, and and again we might get into other other points, but but you'd made three major points um, in creating some context for his reign, uh, David, the imperial capital. So before he founds Constantinople or re renames it as Constantinople, however you want to look look at that, um, where were laws being issued? from in the Roman Empire? The source of law in the Roman Empire was always the emperor. Uh, so law would be issued from wherever the emperor happened to be uh, and wherever somebody could come and find him. Uh, we have a spectacular series of texts uh, from the reign of the emperor Hadrian uh, dealing with the organization of public spectacles in the empire uh, and what Hadrian tells us, I was down in Naples and everybody came to see me so we could talk about how to arrange this and this is what I think you should all do. 
Uh, so that, you know, it's very clearly the emperor saying, I'm in Naples. Um, this is where law, this uh, legislation is coming from. Uh, in the reign of Diocletian, uh, it was primarily Diocletian who made law. Uh, Maximian, there's some evidence for some legislation by Maximian. Uh, the deputies were not supposed to make law on their own. This was up to the really the senior emperor. And under, Di under uh, Diocletian, uh, what we also have are efforts to systematize Roman law, uh, to create collections of imperial statements. Now, basically, the emperor made law uh, either through an edict, in which case he just said, okay, this is what everybody's going to do. Um, uh, and so, I mean, the, the term comes edixit in Latin, he spoke. Uh, and then a rescript, and this, these two terms are really important for getting an idea of the differing processes. A rescript is something literally written back to somebody. Uh, and the vast majority of texts that end up uh, in the uh, Diocletianic corpuses of law are rescripts, answers to questions. And the imperial government had learned for centuries uh, that you could make policy very well uh, through rescripts, uh, because what you would do is simply you would make sure that you gave consistent answers uh, each time you got a, a question on some subject. Uh, and Constantine himself uh, largely uh, would legislate uh, through rescripts uh, rather than edicts. Um, uh, one of the awkward things here uh, is that in Rome, there was an imperial archive uh, certainly into the second century, so that if you needed to chase something down, you could get it in Rome. Uh, after the time of Diocletian, we have a number of different centers uh, for recording law, uh, and when we look at the way that our texts are preserved to us, we can see, for instance, that Constantinople, Carthage, Rome are the main sources uh, of the archives uh, from which this legislation emerged. Uh, and if, I think you mentioned it earlier. What what year was Constantinople uh, founded? Constantinople was founded or refounded by Constantine in 325, um, and by 330, they'd done enough work on reconstruction that the emperor could move in uh, and sort of really begin to use Constantinople uh, as his principal seat of power. Uh, I suppose it's one of the ironies that uh, Constantinople was really only Constantine's city uh, for a very few years in his lifetime. Uh, and he'd spent uh, much more of his time, uh, even in a place like Nicomedia, which he didn't like very much, uh, or Sirmium or Antioch. After Constantinople was established or, you know, renamed, but resources are now being put into it, was that considered at that point um, his principal residences? And, it, and um, do you think he considered Constantinople to be the capital of the empire at that point? Constantine, I think, did not see Constantinople as a single capital uh, because of the way that the Tetrarchs had built up new palaces um, for themselves, 
it was the case that there were multiple capitals for the empire, that there would be a city that the emperor favored as his own. Diocletian had favored Nicomedia. Licinius had favored Nicomedia. Uh, Constantius had favored Trier. Uh, Constantine was certainly going to make Constantinople his favorite capital, uh, but it was not a replacement um, for Rome ideologically as the center of the empire uh, or for these other cities, um, some of which Constantine was continuing to use throughout his reign. Okay. So so let's go to um, the 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 mil- military side because you you mentioned that um he, he expanded the army there was a lot of effort there um in in the last time we chatted you outlined um in 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 good de- in in detail the tumultuousness that was occurring um pr- prior to his his life kind of leading up to the life but but also occurring and this came up earlier in the conversation in the uh, early period of his of his reign, it was a very tumultuous time um, in the Roman Empire. So when he's uh, reigning as sole emperor, can you can you describe and maybe it's a bit of a juxtaposition off you know what's previous to that? Can you describe um, the level of peacefulness you know versus conflicts that would have been occurring when he's sole emperor in the Roman Empire? Yes, the sole reign of Constantine was remarkably peaceful. Uh, we know that he was on campaign uh, for a couple of years against the Gothic tribes to his north. Uh, we know that in the 320s, uh, there were also some campaigns along the Rhine. Uh, Constantine had placed his elder son Crispus in charge there uh, after the defeat of Licinius. That didn't go very well for Crispus, uh, ultimately, but... Uh, There were certainly some campaigns north of the Rhine. Uh, But basically, there there were no uh, major wars uh, against outside powers under Constantine. At the very end of his life, uh, he was planning a war against the Persians. Um, And that's what he was going to do in 337. He had pretty much provoked the war on his own. Uh, The Persians were the sort of ultimate symbolic enemy of Rome, Uh, Of course, because of the capture of Valerian back in 260, if you wanted to be a truly great Roman emperor, you needed to go bash the Persians. This is what had sort of stabilized and solidified uh, the position of Diocletian, that is, Valerius's victory over the Persians uh, in 297-298. was a campaign Constantine was uh, certainly part of as a young man. Uh, The importance of this can be seen to this day if you go to Thessaloniki, uh, where there is, on the Arch of Galerius, the image of Galerius in hand-to-hand combat with the king of Persia, something that never happened, but was a uh, really almost a Roman knockoff of the iconography of the Sasanian Persian kings, uh, where, for instance, we could have uh, a wonderful seal ring of King Sapor capturing uh, Valerian in his own hand. Uh, so I think that Constantine um, saw a campaign with Persia as something that a Roman emperor in stable control of his empire uh, was supposed to do. Uh, He had also been lecturing the uh, Persian king on being nice to Christians. Uh, One of the things that Constantine was very aggressive about was actually 
Christianization outside of the Roman Empire. He actively promoted Christianity um, among the Goths. Uh, he told Sapor, uh, lay off the Christians of Persia. Um, the Sapor, Sapor II, who was actually a small child at this point, uh, wrote him saying, don't you realize that it wasn't your uh, the Persian king, the great Sapor, who captured Valerian. It was the Christian God who did him in because he persecuted the church. Um, really under, uh, undermining at that point uh, the sort of uh, core uh, ideology of the, uh, of the Sasanian kingdom. Um, but by and large, what I think we can see Constantine doing is extending Roman influence north of the frontiers uh, that by bringing Goths into the army in large uh, measure, uh, what he is doing is sort of colonizing the area north of the frontier uh, and creating zones where people are basically feeling that it's in their better interests to be on good terms with the Romans. Uh, the same is true north of the Rhine. Uh, if you're a Frankish chieftain, well, you can go fight the Romans, be thrown to the lions, um, which Constantine did early in his reign, uh, or you can uh, join the Roman army and become a Roman general. Uh, so this sort of uh, border zone uh, north of the frontier uh, is expanded by this large-scale recruitment into the army. This is also useful in terms of Roman domestic policy uh, because Roman taxation is uh, partially based on the number of people living in any district. And so cities are not very happy about having their young men recruited into the Roman army uh, and not then having their tax base uh, shifted down after they've lost a bunch of people for whom they have to pay taxes. Uh, so foreign recruitment uh, was certainly a popular thing, I think, uh, domestically. Okay. And you mentioned the Sasanians. So I want to I want to clarify. So the Persian Empire that uh, was ruling at this period of time were the Sasanians, were they? That's right. The Sasanians had taken over in 225, uh, overthrowing the Arsacids, who'd been uh, in charge of the Persian Empire, uh, really, since the end of the second century BCE. Okay, and you mentioned, um, and, you know, cl clarify if I don't quite have this accurately, but I thought you mentioned that he had um, communications with the, um, uh, with the, king of the Sasanian. So was there a diplomatic relationship between these two groups? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the Romans saw the Sasanians uh, as the other big kingdom, the other big empire, uh, and they would certainly maintain uh, diplomatic relations. Uh, there would not be a permanent ambassador uh, sort of stationed in the Persian capital of Tisiphon, uh, but there would be a regular traffic back and forth uh, we also have a certain amount of evidence that you know, provincial governors, Roman officials, uh, would have their own dealings with Persian officials on the other side of the uh, of the frontier. Uh, that trade across the frontier uh, was very important to both uh, to both parties. Um, it was more often than not uh, in the interests of both the Romans and the Sasanians uh, to be at peace. Uh, the wars that we find them fighting uh, in the 4th century uh, are for ideological rather than practical reasons. Uh, and it's that which 
the war that Constantine started with the Persians at the end of his life uh, would rage on and off uh, for more than 20 years. Okay, so during his reign near the end, he did officially commence war with the Sasanians. He did. Uh, and I suspect that Constantine uh, thought that it wouldn't be a very long war. Constantine was a very, very able general. Uh, and I suspect he thought he could do to the Sasanians what he'd done to Licinius, what he'd done to Maxentius, uh, and occupy uh, Tisiphon and probably take over a chunk of territory along the frontier to make a part of the Roman Empire. Okay, and and um, not a lot of time needs to be spent on this for the sake sake of sake of time, keeping the total episode under um, six sixty minutes. But so that's not a cliffhanger for for anyone. Can you describe um, by the end of his life, so by the end of Constantine's reign, how that how that war was sort of le- left off? Was it complete or was it ongoing still? Well, the war with Persia was ongoing when Constantine died, and it was continued by his son uh, Constantius. Uh, really, throughout Constantius's reign, Constantius died in 362. Uh, and then Julian, uh, who was uh, the nephew of Constantine and who tried to undo Constantine's Christianization of the empire, uh, decided to invade the Persian Empire in 363. The result was a total disaster. Uh, Julian died in battle, uh, and his immediate successor surrendered a large quantity of territory to the Persians. After that, there was effective peace uh, between Rome and Persia uh, for the next 150 years. Yeah, and earlier when you were uh, bringing up this this topic, it made me think of, in a lot of times when you're looking at these situations of tension and conflict, there's tension, but it's also homogenous in that people are still doing trade with each other. There's, right, there's, you know, there there could be border border. Um, areas with with the, each other and in, in relations in that respect. So it's it's all it's it's sometimes difficult to uh, just define it as one specific type of tension. That's absolutely right, and uh, I think that at the end of his life, uh, Constantine uh, felt he needed to make his own mark on the frontier to be the equivalent of Diocletian and Galerius. I think Constantine spent an awful lot of his life uh, competing vicariously with his predecessors. Uh, And he needed something uh, that would be the equivalent of their great Eastern victory uh, on his own resume. Uh, But when we look at the period before that, uh, essentially, there'd been 30 years of peace between Rome and Persia. Okay. So let's uh, work our way, David, to the uh, later part of his succession, his, his eventual death and succession. So what's known about uh, that, that, that period? Well, much of what we know about the latter part of Constantine's uh, life uh, comes through Eusebius's life of Constantine, which is not uh, a tremendously accurate uh, picture because Eusebius wanted to paint Constantine as somebody who was far more Christian uh, than he actually was. Uh, but the major moments in the sort of towards the end in the last decade of Constantine's life uh, are, of course, uh, the Council of Nicaea, another Christian council, uh, which he summons to deal with two big questions the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Christian Trinity and the date of Easter, whether it should be uh, attached. Uh, to Passover or not, uh, 
Constantine thought he solved the issue of the relationship between the father and the son with the Nicene Creed, uh, which uh, is perhaps the best-known piece of Roman imperial legislation of all time. Uh, as a typical uh, piece of imperial work, a priest comes into Constantine, an expert comes into Constantine, just as if it was a, uh, a lawyer, uh, Constantine was consulting, said, okay, this is what uh, you want to do. Constantine says yes, and read it out, Council of Nicaea, and said, all of you subscribe. Everybody but one person did. Um, and he is increasingly um, giving advantages to people who become Christian uh, in the latter years of his reign. There's a wonderful letter from Constantine to a city uh, in Western Turkey saying, well, you want to have civic status? This is fine. You have a town council, you have nice buildings, uh, the amenities, everything you should have to have a city. Um, and therefore, I'm granting you this status. And by the way, I've heard that all of your people are Christians, and I think that makes me especially happy to do this. Uh, but what he's doing is showing that being a Christian is a plus factor in dealing with the imperial government. You can't get what you want solely by being a Christian, but it will make it easier for you to get uh, what you would like. Uh, he is also, in the last few years of his life, uh, looking to organizing a succession. Uh, and in this case, he had a bit of a problem. He had three sons, uh, and he had a nephew. Uh, and he could have divided the empire up between his three sons, uh, one of whom was still very young at this point. Uh, but he decided, in fact, to effectively recreate the Tetrarchy uh, and divide the empire up between his three sons and his nephew, Domitius. Uh, that's a plan of succession uh, failed almost immediately uh, when Constantius um, uh, arranged the judicial murder uh, of Dalmatius um, and also a number of other members of, uh, of his own family. Um, there was clearly a great deal of tension in the family about how, uh, what their relationships were going to be going forward. Are the three sons of Constantine and Fausta the only ones who count? Well, Constantine had a number of half-brothers and half-sisters uh, the result of the second marriage of his father. Uh, and he had brought a number of them into, uh, into roles of government, uh, and he saw them as part of uh, an extended imperial family. Uh, it also looks as if Constantine's most senior officials favored a four-part succession uh, because what that would essentially do is leave each one of these senior officials uh, in post running his quarter of the empire. Uh, I think that what happened after Constantine's death, these, these guys had been in power for an awful long time, uh, is that there was a general sort of group around Constantius uh, that was interested in undoing Constantine's succession plans uh, not only getting rid of Dalmatius, uh, but also getting rid of a number of the very long-term imperial officials um, and replacing them with, uh, with some new blood. Um, I think we get a sense that by the time that Constantine died, um, there were many people who felt that his regime had stagnated. What's known about how he died? We don't have any real details. We're told... Uh, that he set out to be baptized in the River Jordan um, outside of Nicomedia. He suddenly fell very ill um, and died very rapidly.
Okay. And that's all we're told. Okay. You have a book coming out very soon, Disruption, Why Things Change. Um, you highlight and feature Constantine first in the book. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Uh, because I think the long-term consequences of his conversion to Christianity and the way that he did it uh, changed the intellectual direction of the, uh, of the ancient Mediterranean world. Uh, by adding Christianity into the mix, it created a far more organized intellectual system that had been there before. Uh, what I also thought, think is very important about Constantine is how he did it. Um, he is an example of somebody who can affect radical change uh, by showing people a way to do something different rather than compelling them. Uh, and the most successful big changes that we've seen in history uh, result from creating, as Constantine did, a new middle ground, a new area for discussion, and a new way forward by and avoiding compulsion. I always enjoy speaking with you, David. Thanks for coming on the show again. Andrew, thank you very much for having me. So on that note, everybody, Disruption, Why Things Change, again, that's scheduled for release July 2021. And the other book that is also germane to this conversation that is out and available, Constantine the Emperor. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. David and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.